without going into too many. Is this on? Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, without going into too many details, I wanted to let you know this morning that I'm having some mouth issues so that you can pray for me even as I'm speaking today. Uh, I went into the dentist a week ago this last Friday, so a week and two days ago, to have a wisdom tooth removed, something I probably should have done a long time ago. And it didn't go well, and so I had a follow-up uh, oral surgery this last Tuesday, and I've now discovered over the weekend that I need to go in to have another oral surgery tomorrow to take care of another issue, all for one lousy tooth. So, uh, I'm in a bit of pain. Uh, it hurts to talk and swallow. So I'm going to have to do both of those things today. Uh, so if you just keep me in prayer, I'd appreciate it. Even if I'm talking funny at any point, that's the main reason. I'm, just, I, I'm a little self-conscious, I think, about that. So if I'm talking a little funny or weird, I want, you, I want to have an excuse for that so that you know what's going on. As well, I, I haven't uh, been as uh, focused the last, uh, the last week and have been laid up for a bit, so uh, I have noticed that my inbox, my email inbox is uh, expanding. I'm not sure if it can hold all the emails, but so thank you for those of you who have extended patience. Uh, I appreciate that. This morning we have Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17. Let me say a few things before I open up in prayer. Some things that you'll find familiar, things you've heard before. What you believe determines how you behave. What you believe determines how you behave. In other words, thinking precedes living. Right thinking leads to right living. And Paul obviously understands this, which is why in all of his letters, you look and read all of Paul's letters, you will find that he postpones telling his readers how to live and how to take action. And he always begins by first spending quite a bit of time loading their minds with truth. And then once he spent significant time loading their minds with truth, then he calls them to action. So, in Colossians, we have that example. Alright, in Colossians, we see Paul using chapters 1 and 2 to load our minds with truth. That's chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. And then, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is calling us to action. So, it goes something like this. Paul is saying, Christians, read chapters 1 and 2. Read chapters 1 and 2. This is who Christ is. This is who you are in Christ. And Paul is saying, read that. Meditate on that. Think about that. Let that sink in. And then Paul like he's saying, okay, now are you ready for the next step? Now that you've thought about this and meditate on it, 
Your mind is loaded with the right truth. You're thinking well. You're believing well. Your mind and heart are centered. Now, Paul would tell us, now live according to who you are. That's always his point. This is who you are. This is who God is. And now, live according to who you are. So God is calling you and God is calling me. Paul is calling us to live a life that is consistent with who you are. So you've got to understand who you are in Christ and then live accordingly. That is all the imperative texts in your New Testament. That is all the commands in your New Testament. They are always following an understanding and assuming you have an understanding of who Christ is and who you are in Christ. You've got to know that. You've got to understand that. So last week, we learned in verses 5-11 through of chapter 3 what God is calling us to put off. And this morning, we'll hear from Paul what God wants us to put on. Last week, putting off. This week, putting on. So before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that You would help us to hear and and divide Your Word rightly and help me to speak and preach well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12. Put on, there it is, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There are those five Christian virtues that I promised we would get to that match these lists of five vices that Paul has already encouraged us to put off. And now he's telling us what to put on. But let's spend some time paying close attention to what Paul calls us. There's some name calling here in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There it is again. Christians. This is who you are. This is who you are. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now see the structure in Paul's verses. This is what he's saying. Christian, this is who you are. God's chosen ones, holy ones, beloved ones. And now, therefore, do... Verses 12b all the way through 17. You see how he's doing that? Here's who you are. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now therefore, put on therefore as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he gives us a a fairly lengthy list of what it looks like to live the Christian life. So now that you understand who you are, now do... Verses 12b through 17. But let's stop before we get to that instruction on how to live the Christian life. And let's think about who we are according to Paul here. Chosen by God. Set apart by God. Loved by God. 
And I want to I want to belabor this and take our time with this description of a Christian here that Paul gives. I want to take our time and understand this description of Christians because I think Paul chooses this description intentionally, very carefully, because he wants this description of Christians to be the motivation and the incentive for why you do verses 12b through 17. So you are this, Paul says, and that's meant to be the motivation or the incentive to do verses 12b through 17. You are chosen by God, set apart by God, loved by God. So I'd like to talk at length now about the unconditional election of God. Let's look at the unconditional election of God. What it means to be chosen by God, set apart by God, loved by God, and then we'll run through the next five verses just making sure that we understand what Paul is calling us to do. So most of our time now is understanding what it means to be chosen by God because that's where the motivation comes and the incentive comes for the Christian life. And then all we need to do is really run through the following verses and make sure that we understand what Paul is calling us to do. So Paul answers the question here and elsewhere, but he does here a question that you may have asked yourself or been asked. Did I choose God or did God choose me? That's an old question for Christians. And it is a question that has hung up a lot of Christians. Hung me up for years. Did I choose God or did God choose me? Maybe some of you have never even thought about it. but Now you have to. Now you have to think about it. Or another way to ask that, do I belong to God because I came to Jesus or did I come to Jesus because I belong to God? Same question. Just asking it in a different way. Or, am I Jesus' sheep because I believed or did I believe because I'm one of Jesus' sheep? It's like a which came first, right? The chicken or the egg kind of question. So did I, this is the question Paul answers, did I choose God or did God choose me? Do I belong to God because I came to Jesus or did I come to Jesus because I belong to God? Am I one of Jesus' sheep because I believed in Him or did I believe in Him because I'm one of Jesus' sheep? That's the question. And if you haven't asked it before, we're, we're going to ask it this morning. So, what I'd like to do is make a statement and then ask a question. That's so how I'd like to work through this unconditional election. And my hope and prayer is that as we go through this, that you will be either for the first time or again filled with joy and love for God as you are understanding for the first time or reminded of how great His love is for you. And then you'll be motivated to do verses 12b through 17. So I'm just trying to accomplish what Paul, I think, is trying to accomplish. A statement and then a question. The statement, 
God chooses who will be saved. God chooses who will be saved. Now that is believed across the board. That's actually not the controversial statement. Let me explain that. Everyone, Christian, believes that God chooses who will be saved. R.C. Sproul said, from all eternity, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. That's indisputable. That's just something we observe in Scripture and today. We're not universalists. Clearly, everyone is not a Christian. Everyone doesn't go to Christ. And clearly, no one else or nothing else is overpowering God in this. And clearly, God could change things if He wanted to change things and has decided not to. So we all have to affirm this. It's a reality. Here's some verses. Deuteronomy 4. 37 about God choosing Israel because He loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by His presence and His great strength. Here's another example of God choosing David. Psalm 78, 70-71 He chose David, His servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from the tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. Luke 6.13, I won't read it, but God chose, Jesus chose his disciples. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.13, about Christians in general. But we ought always to thank God for you, Brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So actually, this is not what people disagree over. This is not what people disagree over. That is very plain. God chose you to be saved. But now the question. Because this is where the disagreement lies. The question is not over whether or not God chooses who will be saved. The question is how does God choose whom He will save? That's the question. And there are different answers to that question. Namely, two. Another way of asking the question is upon what does God base His choice? So those who end up in heaven clearly are chosen by God and those who are not in heaven are clearly not chosen by God. No one disputes that. But what is the basis for God's choosing of those who are in heaven? How does God choose whom He will save? And here are, in a nutshell, the two understandings. There are other understandings that are heretical. They're wrong. Uh, statements like God doesn't see the future. Which would not be truth. And would not be within the bounds of orthodoxy. Be flat out denying the truth of Scripture. But within orthodoxy, there are 
these two different views. And devoted, Jesus-loving, heaven-bound Christians subscribe to each of these views. So please hear me say that. I mean, you're definitely going to hear me say that one of them is totally wrong. And one of them is absolutely and clearly right. And I'm going to seek to compel you. But you don't even need to agree with me on this to be a member of this church. So we do acknowledge that Christians on both sides of this fence love the Lord and are bound for heaven. This is believed by genuine Christians. Here they are in a nutshell. Number one, God chooses us for salvation because we have chosen Him. We are saved or chosen or elected based on foreseen faith. This is what I believed until I was in my mid-twenties. I think still this is what the majority of evangelical Christians, I haven't seen any polls, but I think the majority of evangelical Christians today probably come down on number one. And I think the majority of those who land on number one haven't actually searched the Scriptures to see if that's true. But that's definitely a view out there. Let me say it again. God chooses us for salvation because we have chosen Him. We are saved or chosen, elected, based on foreseen faith. Therefore, man's choice is the foundational choice in his salvation. That's view number one. Or a classic Arminian view is the historical word. Number two, God chooses us for salvation and changes our heart so that we freely choose Him. We are saved or chosen, elected, based on God's sovereign choice. So there's the difference. Number one, we are elected based on foreseen faith. God sees who will choose Him and He chooses them. That's view number one, based on foreseen faith. View number two, chosen based on God's sovereign choice. Number one, man's choice is foundational. Number two, God's choice is foundational. And both of them come with problems. Both of them provoke lots of questions. And both of them require the Scriptures to be searched. But is our faith and belief the reason for God's election or is it the result of God's election? That is the question. Is our faith and belief as Christians, is that the reason for God's election or is it the result of God's election. So let's look more closely now at both of these options. Both believed by genuine Christians. Let's look first at, at number one. Man's choice being foundational. If that's the case, we're talking about a conditional election. God's election is conditional. And this is how you might want to think about it how it's commonly described, how I grew up believing is that God, uh, in the very beginning, before creation, looks down the tunnel of time 
And as he looks down the tunnel of time, he sees who will choose him and who won't choose him. He sees who will believe the Gospel and who will reject the Gospel. And all those whom He sees believing the Gospel, He elects them and chooses them for salvation. And so His election, His choosing of them, is based on their faith that He foresees. So it's based on foreseen faith. They meet the condition for election, which is faith. Let me suggest four problems with that view. Let me suggest four problems with that view. Number one, man, Scripture teaches, is totally depraved and unable to choose God. That's a big problem. Biblically speaking, man is not able to believe the Gospel and choose God on his own. We have verse after verse after verse that makes this clear. Romans 8.7, Ephesians 2.8-9, Isaiah 6.9-10, John 12.40, Romans 9.18, 1 Corinthians 2.14, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. we could go on and on and on. Romans 3, no one seeks after God. No, not one. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful, sick, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Job 21.14-15 says, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of Your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? That is a description of just humanity. We don't love God on our own. We reject God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So, as R.C. Sproul also says, if the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners, we would despair of all hope that anyone would be saved. So that's a very big biblical problem with that view. In other words, if it's God looking down the tunnel of time and seeing who jumps in that believing, accepting of Christ tunnel, we have Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that says no one is going to jump into that tunnel. No one will jump into that tunnel on their own. So that's a problem. Second problem if man is saved by faith that is of himself, then this is salvation by works. There's another difficulty here. So if this view is true, and God works in everybody the exact same way, because that's what has to be asserted, if God works in everybody the exact same way, then the only difference, i.e. faith, that leads to the reward of heaven is in us. The difference is not in God. He does the same thing for everybody. He works the same way in everybody. Right? You've heard this. 
even playing field, and now it's up to us. And that's the only way God, you've heard the philosophical arguments, that's the only way God can be loving. He can't love some more than others. If so, then God is not love, the argument goes. So God loves all equally. He does not do anything different in anyone. Gives everybody an even shot. The ball is in our court. And now what we must make the choice. So for those who do make the right choice, the difference is in them and in something they did, not in something God did. And so that is, in essence, salvation by works. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So here's the question under this problem. Why do some respond favorably to the Holy Spirit rather than refuse His wooing? That's the question. So if the Holy Spirit and if God is working evenly with everybody, why do some place their faith in Christ and others do not place their faith in Christ? And there's only two possibilities. Either God does something different or man does something different. And if there is a difference in man that leads him to embrace the Holy Spirit, then the root of salvation is a human work. And it makes that faith a meritorious work. So if we both sit, we both hear this Gospel presentation, I choose God, you don't choose God, I open my heart, you don't open your heart. With this view, God doesn't do anything different with either of us, so where's the difference? The difference is in me. I was smarter, I was more open to the Gospel, I'm more spiritual, I was more receptive, whatever it is, and now I've got something to boast in. This is Paul's whole deal in Romans chapter 9. He makes unconditional election very clear, and his whole reason for doing that is so that no one may boast. But if the difference is in me, I have something to boast in. Number three, there's two more problems to consider. If this view is true, then God does not truly save anybody. He just makes people savable. That's true, then God doesn't actually save anybody. He just makes everyone savable. And now it's up to us to save ourselves. You've heard that. We're all drowning and He throws the life preserver out and then it's up to us to grab it. The question is, we all would say yes. We all need to take hold of Christ. But is there more? Does God do anything else? Is there more to it? What we're saying is sure. When you hear the Gospel, that life preserver is thrown out and no one, no one takes hold of it. Unless God does further work. Soften their heart. Open their eyes. Take a heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. Send His Holy Spirit that things that are spiritually discerned would be discerned. To remove the scales from their eyes. To breathe life into them. To raise them from the dead. These are all biblical expressions of what takes place. And then finally, number four. 
This one, I think, requires more thinking. If this is true, consider this. If this is true, and God does not do anything different, and His love is equally poured out on everyone, and it is now the balls in our court to do something different. If that's true, then God has not done anything different for His bride than He has done for those in hell. Just let that sink in. If that's the case, then God has not done anything different for His bride than He has done for those who are in hell. He's gone the same distance with both. And now it's up to them. Is this what the Scriptures teach? I mean, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives like who? As Christ loved who? The church and gave Himself up for her. Does He do more for some than others? Absolutely. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the first view. That God chooses us for salvation because we have chosen Him and we are saved based on foreseen faith. The second, God's choice is foundational. God's election is unconditional. And I'm just going to read Scriptures and read verses that tell us more. Not to say that we can't find verse after verse after verse that says that we need to choose Christ. Those words aren't used. But that we need to take hold of Christ. That we need to believe the Gospel. That we are responsible. Absolutely. There's verse after verse after verse that says we need to be responsible. And we need to turn from our sin and trust Christ. This is the question. Is there more? Do the Scriptures say more? Do the Scriptures give a reason why some place their faith in Christ and some do not? Listen to these verses. Ephesians 1, 4-6 through Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It requires so much work to try to make those verses in Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 to say something different than what they plainly say. Romans 9, verses 21-23. through I mean, for years, Romans 9 was just a chapter in my Bible I pretended didn't exist. I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't want to believe it. I just would skip it. Read it real quickly. John Piper talks about Romans 9. Have you ever heard his description of Romans 9? For years, he subscribed to the first view that we talked about. And then he came to an understanding of the second view we're talking about. And Romans 9 did him in. And he said, Romans 9 is a lion that devours free willers like me. 
So I had the same problem. Romans 9.21-23. through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul couldn't speak, I don't think, more plainly. So is election based on foreknown faith or does faith happen because of election? What does Acts 13.48 say? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What happened first before they believed? They were appointed to eternal life. Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. It doesn't say they believed and then were appointed to eternal life. Do we belong to God because we come to Jesus? Or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? John 17, 6-9 I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You have given Me. For they are Yours. Who are these people that belong to God the Father that He has given to the Son, Jesus Christ, if not those whom He has elected from before time. Or John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And the One who comes to Me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of Him who sent Me, that of all that He has given Me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So whatever it is that God the Father gives Jesus, whoever that is, all of them get raised up on the last day. And then finally, are we Jesus' sheep because we believe? Or do we believe because we are His sheep? Well, what does John 10 say? Verses 24-27. through The Jews gathered around Him and were saying to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them. Listen to His words. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe. Why don't they believe? Do you remember his answer? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So now, insert yourself into that verse and remember, if you can, the day you believed the Gospel. According to Jesus, why did you believe the Gospel? Because you were His sheep. And you heard the voice of your shepherd. And you followed Him. So, this is election. Unconditional election based on no work of our own. Based on God's sovereign choice, which is mysterious. Why? We don't know other than it was nothing good in us. The illustration that has always helped me here is to imagine a countless amount, number of people with blindfolds on running straight to hell. This is humanity. This is the state that we are all born in. Rejecting God. Running from God. 
but we think we're going in a good direction. We have blindfolds on. And there is the Gospel coming over the loudspeaker to all of us. We share the Gospel with everyone. All of humanity. Right? What's on the loudspeaker? Turn around. You are headed straight for hell. Turn around and run to Christ. And what do we do with those blindfolds on? Whatever. Whatever. Right? No, I, I feel the warmth. It's the beach. We're headed to the beach. This is good. We're moving in the right direction and we keep running headlong into hell no matter how many times we hear the Gospel until and when the Holy Spirit is sent. And who's the Holy Spirit sent to? The elect. Not all of them. But to some, the Holy Spirit is sent. This is called the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Are we puppets? Are we robots? Does He grab us and turn us around and push us in the right direction? No, all the Spirit of God does is comes behind and takes the blindfold off. Do you remember that day when that happened? And the blindfold came off and you saw clearly. And you willingly and freely stopped seeing things for what they were. And you turned and you ran to Christ. That's the unconditional election of God. I did not choose God. God chose me. I chose God because He had chosen me. Now let that sink in. Because here's your motivation for living the Christian life. This is why Paul calls us. He's saying, listen, you're the chosen ones of God. And then he's not going to go to, so, be proud. Get your t-shirt. Get your bumper sticker. I'm chosen. You're not. Sorry. That's not where he ever goes with it, right? That's never where this doctrine goes. It goes to, so you should be the most grateful person on the planet. You should feel more loved than anyone in the universe. And with hearts full of gratitude, you should want and desire and get to live the Christian life. Because it's not about living the Christian life so that God will love you. You're His chosen one. He loved you before He said, let there be light. Before Genesis 1.1. That's what Ephesians 1 is teaching you. Before that, God set His... If you're a Christian, you know this. This is what He's loading your mind with. Before God said, let there be light, God set His affection on you loved you, created you, and in His timing, sent His Holy Spirit to awaken you and raise you from the dead and give you spiritual life because He loves you. Paul wants us to understand this. And he wants you and I to be overwhelmed by this. And then he wants you to live like this. And he tells us, Sam Storm said, some would say that if you tell people that God has already chosen them and already consecrated them and already loves them, you rob them of any incentive to be holy. I knew a pastor who believed just that. Shouldn't such blessings be held forth as the reward for obedience as the proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of diligence and effort and meticulous observance of God's law? And the answer to that question is no! No! You should not hold these rewards out. The rewards are yours. The inheritance is yours. 
God loves you and keeps you. And Jesus says, none that the Father gives me, I'm not going to lose any of them. We go on and on and on. So now, if we understand this, we've got the proper motivation, the proper incentive to read these verses and do what God calls us to do. What are they? One verse at a time. Verse 12, put on then Compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. First, Paul gives five characteristics of the Christian, or some have called this the garment of godliness that we are to put on. All this is is, is what happens if you do Romans 13.14. Romans 13.14 says put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a garment. Put on Jesus, Paul says in Romans. And he's just giving you more information here. What does that mean to put on Jesus? Well, it means to put on compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts we should have as Christians. Where the King James Version says, I love this, bowels of mercy. Do you have bowels of mercy? Are your intestines filled with grace? doesn't really work today. Pity? Compassionate hearts. Do we have pity? You see how all these go together. Kindness. Kindness, which means benevolence in action. It means wanting the good of others. The Christian genuinely wants the good of others. Augustine tells a story about how he came to Christ in the 4th century. He was invited by some of his friends to travel with them to Rome. Augustine had become a Christian. He was in his 30s. He was invited by some friends to travel. They went to Rome and they ended up in Milan where there was a bishop named Ambrose who was the most famous speaker and orator in the church of the day. And so his friends said, you got to come and listen to Ambrose. And Augustine was totally unimpressed. And actually said, if this is the best speaker that Christianity has to offer, Christianity is lacking good speakers. Didn't find anything appealing about the teaching at all. And yet, Augustine stayed in Milan while his friends all moved on. And he ended up listening to sermon after sermon after sermon that Ambrose preached. And he ended up coming to Christ. And what he would later testify was that it wasn't the great speaking of Ambrose that drew him to Christ. And do you know what Augustine said it was? It was his kindness. This man so clearly loved me and was so kind to me that I wanted to hear every word he had to say. He came to Christ. Kindness in a Christian. Humility. Humility. And if we understand, we looked at last week, we should be filled with humility and considering others better than ourselves Meekness. Meekness, a word that is commonly misunderstood, I think, in our culture. Bobby Knight, former coach of Indiana University and Texas Tech, I think, said this about meekness. Hilarious. The meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. 
It was based on a misunderstanding of what meekness is. David was a meek man. How often was his position as the chosen instrument of the Lord challenged? How many opportunities did he have to exercise his strength and even destroy his enemies? Especially I'm thinking of Saul. And yet, he allowed the Lord to defend him. He forewent his own rights. Thomas Watson to find meekness as a grace whereby we are enabled by the Spirit of God to moderate our passions. Or some of you have heard the definition, it is strength under control. So meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. And patience, Paul says, which is long-suffering, especially in the face of pain. Patience after patience after patience. Putting up with, putting up with, putting up with. Verse 13, read on the Christian life. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is interesting as Paul writes to the church. We need these things in our church. We need this in the Christian life. This is biblical tolerance. That word's been hijacked. But this is biblical tolerance. And think about the implication of verse 13. Paul is in a sense saying to Christians in a church, and imagine us as Christians in our church, him saying, you need to be able to put up with each other. You need to put up with each other. What's the implication? You are going to sin against each other. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. He's going to sin against her. She's going to sin against... Try not to point at specific people here. You're going to sin against one another. This is inevitable. We're not thinking that we have a sinless community here. The question is, will we deal with it in a Gospel way? Will we confess it? Will we admit it? Will we ask forgiveness? Paul's saying that is absolutely essential. What are you going to do when you're irritated by people in your church? I would never. Yes, you would. And you have been. I'm sure in the last two weeks you've been thoroughly irritated by someone in this church. That's okay. We are all irritable sometimes. And we're all irritating at times. And we're annoying, aren't we? I can be totally annoyed. Ask my wife. I can be very annoying, especially the last week and a half, I'm sure. It can be very annoying, very irritating. I can grate on nerves. And, and I know you can too. I'm sure I've been irritated by some of you. Please don't take offense at that. It's probably more my problem than it was your problem. It's, it's going to happen. You see, he, he's helping us to just be honest and real about these realities in the Christian community. And so he says, you need to bear with one another. You need to know how to, how are you going to do what Proverbs says and overlook offenses? How are you going to be able to do that? Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And, and how are we enabled to do that? What does he say right there in verse 13? Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Are you ever struggling to forgive somebody? What should you think about? How Christ has forgiven you. And you see how small your offenses become. 
keeps us from holding grudges against one another. Verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is like the cement of the local church. It's what holds and binds us together. Without love, in fact, all these other graces can just become acts of duty that are loveless. He says, above all these, we need to love one another. Paul always puts love high above everything else. 1 Corinthians 13.13 So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is which one? Love. John 13.34 and 35 Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul says in the Christian life, above all these put on love. A few more. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. A couple verses about this peace he's talking about. He mentioned peace earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And through Him, this is Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So this says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I don't think this is a feeling. I don't think this is subjective, though that can be a kind of peace. Or I just feel at peace. This is an objective peace. The removal of hostility. The removal of barriers. And Christ has brought in His church peace between believers. So He's saying let that peace rule in you so that there will be unity. John 14.27 Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Verse 16 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the Christian is letting the Word of Christ dwell in him or in her richly. Teaching about Christ or the words of Christ Himself God's Word, Scripture, do we let these words dwell in us richly? If we do, it should overflow so that we're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It should come out in our worship together as we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then verse 17, finally. He's given us the incentive. He's given us the motivation. You are the chosen ones of God. You are the holy ones of God. You are the loved ones of God. Now live this Christian life. In verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And if you paid attention, he mentions thanksgiving three times in just a few verses. Saying be a thankful Thankful people. 
like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In the same way, he's saying now, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the things you do in a given day. How many things do you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? How many things would you be comfortable attaching that phrase at the end? I did this today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a way of evaluating our life, isn't it? It's a way of thinking about our words and our thoughts and our decisions and our behavior. Do we do all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul's challenge in verses 12 through 17. Remember, he's saying, Christians, remember who you are. You are the chosen ones of God. You are his beloved. He has set his affection on you. Let that be your incentive. Let that be your motivation in living the Christian life. These are the things that you must put on. So, verses 5 through 11, we put off, we eliminate sin. But the Christian life is not just negative. It is not just not doing the bad stuff. The Christian life is putting things off and putting things on. And we're constantly and always doing those two things. Putting on, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, as God's chosen ones. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that You have chosen us, that You have set us apart and made us holy, and that we are Your, as You call us, Your beloved, and You have become our beloved. We thank You for Your patience with us. We thank You for the meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your compassion, Your kindness toward us. We ask that You would help us to put these graces on ourselves. To honor You. To do all things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. For Your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.